All right, church family, let's take our Bibles. Let's head to the book of 1 Corinthians and chapter 15. And 1 Corinthians comes before 2 Corinthians. Good. We're on, we're on point this morning. Good. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And if you got out of the house without a Bible today and you'd like one, uh, Ron would just be happy to supply you with a copy of God's Word. We keep some just for that reason. There's a note page in your bulletin as well. If you wouldn't mind grabbing that note page, I would appreciate that. Now, if I could ask you to think back to the days when you were in school, and if you are still in school, all the better, but I know that in making that statement, I'm asking some of you to go way, way back to when you were in school. Go back to that time, though. Remember back to that time towards the end of a long semester at school. You're, you're getting close to information overload because midterms are coming or your finals are approaching. And every class, the teachers just seem to be giving out more assignments and more papers and, and more reading to do. And your brain is just really getting full. And as the teacher lectures, a question forms in your mind and in the mind of all of the other students in your class. It's probably one of the most frequently asked of all questions toward the end of a semester. Do you know what question it is? Is this going to be on the final, right? That's the question. Is this going to be on the final? And you can practically hear that. Those words echoing down the hallway of your memory right now. You hear yourself asking, do we really need to know all of this material? Is this going to be on the final? And every once in a while, if your teacher was cool, they'd tell you. They'd let you know what stuff was really, really important. And you better know it. And what stuff was eh, maybe just extra credit? Is this going to be on the final? Your Bible is open to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 by now, right, everybody? Okay. Under the leading and the direction of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul writes a first century Greek-speaking church, the church in Corinth. And let's hear what he has to say to them in the opening verses of the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians. Paul writes, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel, that is the good news I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, unless you were just going through the motions, you never really did believe at all. Verse 3 for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. And we'll stop right there. 
May the Holy Spirit bring his truth within easy reach of each of us this morning. That's my prayer for our time here in the Word. When Paul's letter came to the Corinthians there, the believers who were in that city, someone had to read the letter out loud. There weren't printing presses in that day, of course, and so unlike our situation where everybody has a copy of God's Word on their lap or on their phone, they didn't have that opportunity. There was one letter that came from Paul to the Corinthian church. In fact, 9 out of 10 couldn't read at that time anyway, even if they had the letter. So the letter's going to be read out loud, line by line, and 1 Corinthians is a pretty long letter, as you may know, 16 chapters. By the time the reader gets to chapter 15, that we're now just reading, folks have been listening for a long time. Now, after listening for 14 chapters, something can happen to an audience's attention, right? How many of you, I'm just going to ask you, be brutally honest, how many of you ever find your thoughts wandering when I'm up here speaking? (laughs) Hands up, get them up, get them up, keep them up. How many of your minds were already wandering and you just raised your hand because your neighbor (laughs) raised their hand? (laughs) See, Paul knows this is how it goes. And so he says, starting the 15th chapter, he says, Now I I, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel, the, the true gospel I preached to you which you received, in in which you stand and by which you are being saved. Present tense, you're being saved by the truth of the gospel. For I delivered to you as of, what are the next two words? First importance, what I also received. Paul, in effect, says, what I'm about to say is going to be on the final, right? Wake up refocus, concentrate. I know it's been 14 chapters, but let's sharpen our pencils and re-engage. Don't miss this. This is at the, the very top of the list of the things that you need to know. This is of first importance. It's going to be on the final exam of your life. What the Holy Spirit does in this passage in these opening verses of chapter 15 and I know you can see this, is he gives us the absolute bottom line summary of the Christian faith and the true gospel. And he does it in verses 3 and 4. This is it, Paul says. Everything else in many respects is extra credit. This is it. This is of first importance. Verses 3 and 4. When you and I stand before God one day, and the Bible says we are all going to do that, right? We are all going to stand before the living God one day. Hebrews 9.27 lays it out. It is appointed for all men to die once, and after that comes judgment. When you and I stand before God one day, we're going to be handed, figuratively speaking, the final exam. And it will only have... It'll have one question on it. 
And the question will be this. What do you believe about my son Jesus? Final exam, one question. What do you believe about my son? God, by his spirit, here in 1 Corinthians 15, gives us the only right answers to this question. Here's what we really, really need to know and believe. And so Paul says in verse 3, what I received, I faithfully delivered to you. This didn't start with me. I didn't cook this stuff up on my own. What I'm about to tell you is like a torch that has been passed down from one generation to another. God first gave this information to the prophets in the Old Testament who wrote it down. And what was delivered to them, I have received. Jesus confirmed this to Paul personally on the Damascus Road. And Paul says, I now pass this on to you. The true gospel. And this is of first importance, expressing the core of the Christian faith in two foundational, non-negotiable, eternity-defining truths. What is truth number one? It's there in the middle of your note page. It's up on the screen as well. I was wondering, church family and friends, if we could just read truth number one right off of the screen together. Are you game? Let's do it out loud together. Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures and was buried. Truth number one of the most important things that we need to know. Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures and was buried. It's verse three. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I received. Christ died for our sins and he was buried. Why did Jesus have to die, church? Why did Jesus have to die? Well, Paul tells us Christ died for what? Our sins. Church family, while our secular culture might ardently debate the answer to this question in the Bible, in the Word of God, there's no debate. There's only one answer Jesus died on a cross. For our sins. Why? Why? Because we sin. Right? Because we're sinners. Not because Jesus sinned. Uh, He's holy God. Sinlessly perfect. Tempted in every way just as we are. Yes. Hebrews 4.15 says that. But without sin. Holy God. In the flesh without sin. Jesus died Because every one of us at some point has said, and truthfully we've said it so many times we have lost count, if not by words, then by actions, we've said, I don't want to do it God's way. I want to do it my way. What do we call that? Sin. We call that sin. Now, the word sin here in verse 3 is actually an archery term that that Paul borrowed from the first century. It's an archery term. It means to miss the mark. It means to miss the bullseye, miss the target. It's an interesting way to describe sin, isn't it? Using that term. God defines what the bullseye is. 
He sovereignly sets the standard that he wants for us, and he can do that because he's God. And we, because we have a sin nature that resides within us, each of us, we say, no, no, I want to do it my way. I don't want to do it your way, God. Romans 3.23 puts it this way, for all have sin. All have said, I want to do it my way. And, and in that case, we all fall short of the glory, the holiness, the majesty of God. We fall short of his holy standard. We sin. So sin effectively and thoroughly messes up our chance to have a personal relationship with the living God who made us. And it so messes up the relationship, the potential for that, that unless God sends his sinless son to die in our place to pay sin's debt for us, we're destined to spend eternity separated from him. That's why Jesus died. Jesus was the only one who could stand in our place. And eternal praise be to him. He was willing. Amen. He went all the way to the cross and paid that sin debt for us. 1 Peter 2.24, 1 Peter 3.18, there on your note page, declare this truth and remind us of it. So with all of that, let me just ask you to exercise your imagination now in this moment. Imagine with me that we're all standing on the south rim of the Grand Canyon. You've all been to the Grand Canyon at some point, probably, most of us. We've all stood there. That's that's Mather Point right there. So let's imagine that we're all standing on the rim of the south rim of the Grand Canyon, only it's not the Grand Canyon now. It's Separation Canyon. We're going to call it Separation Canyon. And we're not at Mather Point. We're at My Way Point. My Way Point. This is where we, indeed the entire human race, all seven plus billion of us, Sinners, this is where we stand. This is where it starts for all of us. Now, way, way over, as far as you can see on the other side of Separation Canyon, well, that's where God is. That's where he is. That's, that's where he dwells in sinless, holy majesty. That's eternity with God in heaven. And we'll call that God's place. So between my way point and God's place is this enormous chasm called Separation Canyon. It is the chasm that separates us from God the moment that we say, God, I know your rules, but I want to do it my way. I want to do it my way. I'm ignoring your rules. And for the sake of our illustration here, church family, Separation Canyon is uncrossable and it is bottomless. We know that sin has separated us from God, but we want to be with him. There's something internally inside of us that says, I want to be with this God. We know in our heart of hearts that to not be with him for eternity would be horrific. And so we say, How can I, a sinner, get myself to God? How can I make that happen? People have been asking that question literally for thousands of years. 
How can I get myself to God? And they say, I know. I know. I'm going to try to bridge the gap between God and me that sin has created, my sin has created, and I'm going to bridge that gap by doing good things, by trying to be the very best person that I can be. And I think I can bridge Separation Canyon if I do enough good things. You ever met anybody like that who believes like that, thinks like that? The, human, the, 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 the history of the human race is really people saying things like, maybe if I give enough money to worthy causes, maybe if I go to church often enough, maybe if I, if I learn enough religious information, maybe if I do lots of really good deeds for little old ladies crossing the road, maybe, maybe if I get enough involved in enough charitable activities, Why, I can bridge this bottomless chasm myself. I can do it. But here's the truth. Here's the truth. No sinner has ever done that in the history of the human race. Not one has done that. The Bible says we're all what again? We're all sinners. No sinner has ever done that. Not in the history of the world. Separation Canyon is not crossable on a bridge of good works. The world's greatest good deed doer, whoever that might be, whoever that might be, cannot by any effort of their own making cross this chasm created by personal sin. It'd be like saying, to the world's greatest long jumper here at Mather Point. You get a running start and you get a perfect launch off of Mather Point and you try to get to the other side. This is the world's greatest long jumper we're talking about. He might get 28, 29 feet on a good day, but that would be pitifully, hopelessly, Uh, inadequate, you'd end up at the bottom of the canyon. The Bible says this, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. It's near the bottom of your page. We'll put it on the screen. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. You didn't make this happen. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. No one, God says, gets to my place by good deeds, by good works. So is Separation Canyon even crossable? Can it be be crossed? The answer is, of course, yes, it can. It can. And that's the glorious good news of the true gospel. How? How is it crossed, we ask? Well, God asked his sinless son, Jesus, to enter our world, live a perfect life, and then become the only acceptable sacrifice to God for our sin on the cross. God nailed first one hand and then the other hand. And with arms spread wide on a cross, Jesus reaches from my waypoint to God's place. And he bridges this impassable chasm created by our sin 
And he does it at the cross by his death. He dies the death death that we should die. Our death. He dies for our sin. He pays our penalty, satisfying the justice of God. Since God simply can't blow off our sin and and dismiss it as though it were nothing. No, he's, he's perfect in his just character, won't allow him to dismiss our sin. And so he asks his son to pay the debt. Jesus pays the penalty, death and separation from holy God forever, so that we don't have to. Amen? And if we, relying on God's grace alone, put our faith alone in Jesus alone, as Ephesians 2.8 says, we cross over, don't we? We cross over. Not by good works, not by self-effort, but by grace through faith in Jesus. And, and, and God himself builds the bridge to himself in the shape of a cross, a bridge we could never, ever build on our own. We cross over from my waypoint to God's place by grace through faith. On your note page, look at the bottom there. We'll put it on the screen too. John 5, 24. Hear what Jesus says. I tell you the truth. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has, what's the next two words, church? Crossed over. From death to life. From my way point to God's place. This is of first importance, Paul says. It's at the heart of of true Christianity. It's at the heart of the true gospel. Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the scripture and was buried. He really did die. Life in his physical body ended on a Friday afternoon on a cruel cross, because we sin. It was God's plan. But then, Paul says, equally important is a second, non-negotiable, eternally defining truth. You need to know this one for the final as well. If you flip your note page over, what is truth number two, church? Can we read this one aloud together? Let's do it. Jesus rose from the dead on the third day according to the scriptures. Jesus rose from the dead on the third day according to the scriptures. Church family, this fact changes everything for time and eternity, doesn't it? This fact, this one truth. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. You're going to need to know this for the final. I came across a story that I think us mountain folk can really relate to. There was this guy who was driving his roadster convertible on, in, in the mountains one day with the top down. It was a gorgeous day. And he had the radio turned up, and he was thoroughly enjoying the moment as he wound through the mountain scenery on this, this windy road. In fact, he was so focused on the music and so focused on the scenery that he failed to notice that he wasn't going very fast. And that a driver had come up behind him 
and was growing more and more impatient with him for driving so slow and being utterly clueless on the mountain roads. Can you relate to this? Sure you can. <laughs> well, finally, when there was, was room to pass, this furious driver went around this guy in his little sports car, and he, he blasts on the horn, and he shakes his fist, and he gives him some not-so-well-chosen words. But rather than, than just then charging down the road, he actually, this raging motorist, he, he forces this driver in the convertible off to the side of the road. And, and stops, and he gets out of his car, and he screams, I'm going to beat you to a pulp. As the irate driver comes towards him, the man in the sports car apologizes profusely, and this guy screams, your apology is not accepted, and the veins are bulging out in his neck. And, and as this angry guy closes the gap between himself and the guy sitting in the car, the guy in the car looks down on the passenger seat and he sees his little boy's black water pistol. And without even thinking, he reaches down, grabs the pistol, and points it at his would-be attacker. In a split second, that man stopped in his tracks threw up his hands and blurted, I accept your apology. I accept your apology. Don't shoot me. He does a 180, runs back to his car and heads away. Now understand, church family, I am not endorsing this as a strategy that you would ever want to try. But it does point out a truth that I think we can all appreciate, and it is this. The introduction of just one new and significant but unexpected element into an existing situation can radically change a person's perspective. That happened on the side of the road. One new unexpected element, a black pistol, changed everything. And this is precisely what happened on the Sunday morning, three days after the cross. Am I right? The religious leaders, the Roman authorities of the day, figured that Jesus' crucifixion had finished him off. With Jesus dead, his followers would soon scatter, and this whole Jesus as the Son of God and Savior thing would would be over quickly. But on that Sunday morning, God introduced just one new, incredibly significant, completely unexpected element into the existing situation, and it radically changed everything. The words of verse 4, he was raised on the third day. That changes everything, doesn't it? I mean, that changes everything. Where everybody thought they'd find a a, a stone-blocked grave, now there's an open tomb. Where everybody expected to find a body, there's just discarded burial wrappings. And where everyone was expecting to see death, now there is life. And that changes everything. On, On that third day, Jesus rose from the dead. He came out of the tomb, and that changed everything. For time and eternity. And he didn't rocket straight to heaven 
out of the grave, did he? No. Paul is very careful to tell us he appeared. He appeared time and again. This is not going to be some secret, mystical kind of a thing. Jesus went to Peter and said, Peter, I am alive. He appeared to his disciples and said, I am alive. He saw hundreds of his followers at one time and showed them that he was alive. He appeared to the Apostle Paul. And this one new, newly introduced, unexpected element of truth changed everything. Immediately after the crucifixion, if you know the gospel narratives, you know that Jesus' followers were shattered. They were disillusioned. They were broken, defeated, hopeless, done. They went into hiding. They were scared, rocked to the core of their being. They all thought that they had given themselves to a lie. The one they thought was God come to earth? He's just a dead man. That's what they thought. But the resurrection changed everything. It changed them. From the moment they knew that Jesus was alive, they were changed, transformed from from fear-filled fugitives in hiding to bold, hold-nothing-back proclaimers of an empty tomb and a risen Savior. They will from now on face every form of opposition imaginable, even death if necessary, totally and boldly committed to spreading the truth. Jesus died on a cross to save sinners, and he rose from the dead to prove that he did it. They've seen life where they were expecting death, and it changes everything. Now, returning to our illustration of my my way point and God's place and, and separation canyon, the only way this chasm is crossed is if Jesus rises from the dead, yes? It's the only way it works. We all know that's true. If Jesus does not rise from the dead, then he is no different than us. He died on a cross. End of story. No dead man ever built a bridge that I know of. And if Jesus does not rise, then sin and death in the grave are more powerful than God, and we have no hope of ever being with him. But... Jesus is alive. Jesus is risen. He is risen. risen Victorious conqueror of sin, death, and the grave. He has bridged the impassable canyon of separation. No matter whatever else we might think about Christianity this morning, Church family and friends, it really does come down to these two truths. Jesus died for our sins and was buried. And on the third day, he rose from the dead. When you stand before God, when I stand before God, and we all will do that, These two truths will matter and they will matter in an eternal way. These are going to be on the final. 
Know them. Believe them. Let them define your life. Where we spend eternity depends on these two truths. They are of first importance, as Paul said. And it is because that Jesus knew all of this that he says so boldly and with such confidence on the night before he's crucified. In John chapter 14, verse 6, he says this. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Church family, this is Easter truth from the lips of Jesus. This is resurrection truth from the lips of Jesus. I'm not just a way shower. Jesus says, I am the I am the way. Nobody, nobody gets to God's place who does not come by way of me. That's not a popular truth today. We hear all the time, there's lots of ways to get to God. We just call him by different names and we do it different ways. No, no, Jesus says, I alone am the way to God's place. Jesus says, I am the truth. In other words, I can't lie. I am God and I never lie. I don't just know the truth. Jesus says, I am the truth. I tell you that I alone am the bridge to God. You can believe that. It's the truth because I am truth. And I am the life, he says. And what Jesus means by that is that he is true life with God. Freedom from sin's penalty, life forever with God. Eternal life. Proved so on resurrection morning. Jesus is the way that brings us to God. He is the truth that sets us truly free before God. He is the life that ushers us into a living, eternal relationship with God. When you and I stand before God one day, we'll be handed, figuratively speaking, the final exam. And it'll just have one question on it. What do you believe about my son Jesus? What do you believe about him? Well, holy God, I believe two truths about your son. And they have shaped the whole of my life since the day that I first learned of them. Jesus died on a cross to pay a sin debt I could never pay. And he rose from the dead, victorious over my sin and the grave. And because he lives, I live. And God says, welcome to my place. Amen.